Welcome. We are in our class, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. The best way to get the most out of your Bible is to be quiet while I'm talking. Oh, just really, it's all good. And everybody should have a notebook for how to get the most out of your Bible. Does everybody have a notebook? If not, I have some here. Anybody need a notebook? Anybody need one? All right, take a look at uh, page five after tab one. So you got the red tab one or a tab one, whatever color it is. Mine's red. And page five after tab one. And I'll remind you what we've looked at, and then we'll pick up where we left off on page page five. But we've been uh, after tab one, Larry. Page four. Now it starts over on page one. Start here. All right. Excuse me for a moment. Page five, in just a moment, but let me remind you where we've been and we'll pick up where we left off there. This is how to get the most out of your Bible, and it has three major parts to it. We're in the first of those three. The three are listed on the front cover of your notebook. We're doing a survey of the entire Bible, and then after we're finished with that, probably into the early part of next year, then we'll begin part two, which is how to interpret the Bible, and then the third section is how to apply the Bible. And as we do a survey of the Bible, one of the reasons we're doing that is to try to eliminate the intimidation that many people have when they approach the Bible. They're intimidated because the Bible is old, the Bible is big, and the Bible is diverse. It's old in that the the first book of the Bible was written no earlier than 3,500 years ago. And the last book was written about 2,000 years ago. So it's a very old book. And it's a very large book. It has 66 different books that comprise it. They were written by 40 different people over a 1,500-year period. It has 1,189 chapters in it. So it is, uh, it is a large book. And that large, old book is also very diverse. It's uh, written, as I said, by 40 different people over a long period of time. Those 40 different people were in different places. They were in different cultures. Not only different than our culture, but different from other cultures of the other authors of the books of the Bible. So you put all of that together, that it's old, it's big, and it's quite diverse, and it makes it very intimidating. To take the intimidation out in our survey, we're making the case that the Bible is really, despite the fact that it's really large, it's really about three things. It's about creation, it's about the fall, and it's about redemption. And creation, fall, and redemption are given to you in the first three chapters of the first book of the Bible. At the very beginning, the major themes of the rest of the Bible are laid out. And the rest of it are going to, is going to be an explanation, then, of those, those three themes. Now, creation. God is the creator. God makes humanity. God tells humanity who he is and what he expects from them. He gives them what I've called an orientation to their, their world. So the Bible's about three things. The first is creation, who God is and what he expects from us. That's orientation. Then the Bible is also about the fall of humanity into sin, the entrance of sin into God's good world, and that changes everything. The relationship that humanity had originally with God is now separated, is now distorted. And so the things that God had told humanity about himself and about themselves and their duties, now nothing's clear, nothing's right. Everything's messed up because of the entrance of sin. And every person then who comes into the world is affected by that. So orientation becomes disorientation with the fall. So the fall is what our problem is. So creation is 
who God is and what he expects from us, orientation. The fall is what our problem is, disorientation. And then the third thing the Bible is about, given in the third chapter of the first book, is redemption. And that is what God is doing about what's wrong in, in his world. And we're told in the third chapter of the Bible that God is going to bring a solution to the problem of sin, but that solution is going to come through the seed of a woman, through a human being, who's going to come through a particular line. And as the chapters of the Bible unfold, then God begins to focus in on the particular line through whom the solution to sin is going to come. So redemption is what God's going to do about sin, and that is reorientation. So the Bible's about three things. Creation, who God is, and what he expects from us. Orientation, the fall, what our problem is, disorientation, and then redemption, what God is doing about sin, that's reorientation. And the rest of the Bible is about that stuff. And I've also tried to make the case that you could even reduce it down a bit further to one line, that the Bible is about people in the presence of God, people in situations before God, people in situations in the presence of God. So you've got three elements to that line, people and situations in God. People haven't changed. God has not changed. The only thing that's different are the situations, and the Bible's so big that it gives you enough situations about the people that were contemporary to the writing of the books of the Bible that you'll find yourself in there. And as you're reading through the Bible and you're saying to yourself, what is wrong with these people? Why do they keep making the same mistakes over and over again? And then if you will just splash some water on your face and you will, and you will wake up, you'll go, yikes, that's what I do too. And so you'll see yourself in the mirror of the pages of, of Scripture. It's about people in situations before, before God. So God says the solution to sin is going to come through uh, a human being. And the seed of the woman is the way the Bible phrases it. And it gives you genealogies then that start to follow the line of the woman through the, the promised seed. And Adam and Eve have their first two children, Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel. And then at the end of Genesis chapter 4, God says, I've given you, Adam and Eve, a replacement son for Abel. His name is Seth. And then in chapter 5, the line of Seth is, is followed. And one of the descendants of Seth is a guy named Noah. And then in chapter 6, the Bible begins to focus on Noah. But the world has become so sinful that God says, I'm going to destroy the world through a universal flood. He does that. We didn't talk much about that because in a few weeks in our series on Genesis during our 930 hour on Sundays, that's exactly where we have left off. We're taking a little break on Sunday mornings from that. We'll come back to that, and then we'll deal with Noah and the, and the flood. So God destroys the world and judgment because of sin through the flood in the days of, in the days of Noah. And God uh, begins to focus now through again on the line of the woman through whom the solution to sin is going to come. And there are only eight people left at that point. There's Noah, his three sons, and their three wives. And his three sons are Ham and Shem and Japheth. And the line, it turns out, is going to come through one of those three sons, Shem. And one of the descendants of Shem is a guy named Abraham. And the Bible begins to really zero in now on Abraham. Abraham beginning in Genesis chapter 12. And then Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob. And now you're following the line all the way, all the way through. And Jacob has 12 sons, and these become the 12 tribes of Israel, because Jacob's name is changed to Israel. So now, even if you're not very familiar with the Bible, maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've heard of Israel. <laughs> and maybe you've heard of the tribes of Israel. Well, that's where they, that's where they came from, through the lineage of the line that God is following in the Bible through whom the promised Messiah is solution to sin is going is going to come. And Abraham's descendants through Isaac and Jacob and through his his twelve sons uh, find themselves in Egypt because one of those uh, twelve sons is Joseph. The eleventh of the twelve sons is Joseph. And you remember the story that uh, the sons, the other eleven sons, uh, conspire against um, Joseph. They sell him into slavery. 
they assume he's dead and gone. They'll never see him again. And through a series of circumstances, they find themselves years later in Egypt begging for food because a famine has come to the world. Joseph has wound up in Egypt. He's risen to prominence in Egypt. And in fact, he's in charge of the welfare program in, in Egypt. And these guys show up because of this famine and who are they facing and asking for food from? None other than the brother that they left for dead years earlier. The book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, ends with Joseph having this revelation of himself to his brothers. This is me, Joseph, the one that you betrayed and left for dead. And they figure he's going to kill them, uh, as he rightly could have done. But he says to them in the last chapter of the first book, Genesis 50 and verse 20, you intended this for evil, but God meant it God meant it for good. So now you have the chosen line through Jacob and through his sons. You have them in Egypt. And the Bible tells us that they grew to a mighty nation in Egypt. They multiplied. And they grew to such a mighty nation in, in Egypt that in the second book of your Bible, Exodus, it starts by saying that. That they were there and they multiplied. They became a mighty nation so much so that the Egyptian pharaoh is now in fear of how many of these slaves there are. And it tells us in Exodus chapter 1 that there was a, a rose of pharaoh who knew not Joseph, who did not care about Joseph. So the fame of Joseph and how, though he was a Jew and he rose into prominence uh, in pharaoh's court, now there's a future pharaoh who doesn't care about that. And he sees this threat. And he says that we're going to have to reduce this threat. And the way we're going to reduce this threat is uh, male children of the Jews are to be killed. They're to be thrown into the, into the Nile, in fact. And then the Bible tells us that uh, there was a, uh, a child is born that uh, the mother is, seeks to protect and uh, puts the child, you guys know the story, uh, some of you do, puts the child in a basket specially prepared for flotation <laughs> and, uh, and uh, to be waterproof with tar around it. And in God's good providence, it's, uh, it's uh, the household of Pharaoh that re- recovers this basket and, and ends up raising this child. That child is named Moses. And the reason the child is named Moses is because the name Moses means to draw out or to pull out. And in fact, Exodus 1 tells us that he was called Moses because he was drawn out, pulled out of, out of the water. And so now you have this one, Moses, who is going to be reared, is going to be raised in the, uh, the palace of Egypt. And the storyline now is going to pick up with Moses and God's chosen people, the Jews, the Israelites, the children of, of Israel. And if you, want to, if you want to jot down Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews 11, verses 23 to 29. I'll read that for you. I don't expect you to be able to juggle a cup of coffee, a bagel, a Danish, and whatever else you guys have in your hands, and your notebook as well. But Hebrews 11... And I'm going to read what the New Testament says about this one Moses. But the parents to whom he was born were Levites, the Bible tells us. They were born into the tribe, through the tribe of Levi, uh, the Levites. And um, he's raised, as I said, by Pharaoh's daughter. And here's what the New Testament says about him. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. Because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt. Not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who is is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. In a nutshell, that 
gives you the career of Moses, leading the people out of Egypt, leading them uh, across uh, the Red Sea, wandering in, in the wilderness. And all of this he did, Hebrews 11 says, by faith, because he believed. That's what faith means. He believed. He believed God, and he believed the promises of God. So Moses grows up in the palace of, of Egypt, and uh, the Bible tells us that on one occasion he saw an Egyptian mistreating one of his, Moses' people, one of the, one of the Hebrews. And Moses, the, the Bible says this, uh, he looked around, and it says this, he looked around, <laughs> quite sure no one was looking, he killed the Egyptian. But then later, he sees a Hebrew mistreating a Hebrew. And the Bible tells us that Moses confronts this Hebrew. Why are you treating your brother this way? And he says, oh, what are you going to do? Kill me? Like you did that Egyptian? And Moses is like, um, this is not good. Uh, my murder is known. It becomes known to Pharaoh. Pharaoh issues a, uh, uh, an order to, to kill Moses. Moses leaves, goes to a place called Midian. And it is there in Midian that he is married, has a has a son. And then in Exodus chapter 3, God, God appears to Moses in the famous burning bush. And God speaks to Moses and calls Moses to be the one who is going to deliver his God's people and Moses' people from the hand of, of Egypt. And you remember in Exodus chapter 3 that... Moses uh, resisted. Moses resisted uh, greatly. I mean, what about my brother? He's more eloquent than, than me. I don't talk very well. You know, why me? And uh, tries every excuse to get out of it. You guys ever been there, by the way? Okay. So he tries every, every excuse to, to get out of it. And then he says to the Lord, he says, well, who am I supposed to say to Pharaoh has sent me? And then the Lord says famously in Exodus 3 and verse 14, I am that I am. Tell Pharaoh, I am has sent you. Now, that is big for a bunch of reasons. So allow me to give them to you. One is, uh, he asks, does Moses, so what name shall I give Pharaoh? Who shall I say has sent me? And the Lord says, I am. Now, you'll remember that the name of God in the book of Exodus and in a number of places in your Bible is given in English as the Lord, the Lord. And in the NIV, which is the translation that we use here because it's easy to read mostly and it's accurate. So most of you, if you've been around here, you have an NIV. If you don't have an NIV, uh, we have some. I'll give you one before you leave today. Free. Okay? We want everybody to have a Bible they can read. Seriously. So if you don't have one, get one for me before you leave. But the translators into English of the NIV uh, have used a convention to try to help you know which name of God is being used uh, in Hebrew. Because you're not reading Hebrew, you're reading English. And there are different names of God in, in Hebrew. So one of those is, is Adonai, Adonai. And when the Hebrew name for God, Adonai, is used, the NIV translators uh, use this convention for the word Lord, capital L and then small O-R-D. So capital L, O-R-D, small letters. And when you see that in your NIV, that's Adonai behind it. Now, you'll sometimes and often see the word Lord, not with capital L and small O-R-D, but all caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that's a translation of a different Hebrew name for God, Y-H-W-H. You say, what kind of name is that? It's just, it's just four letters. And it's come to be known, because you know, you've got to pronounce it, it's just you know, four consonants at that. So... You know, how do you pronounce it? Because that's what vowels are for, is to help you pronounce stuff. And yet, did you know, I bet you didn't know, some of you may have known, that uh, your Hebrew Bible was originally written without vowels. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you know how to pronounce stuff? 
Well, you could pronounce it if you see that combination of consonants in particular contexts often enough, then you know what that word then you know what that word is. And then by convention it's pronounced a particular way. But if over time you stop seeing that, you stop seeing those consonants in a particular context, then a generation or two or three later, people are going to have no idea how to pronounce it. So centuries later, vowels were added to the Hebrew text. So it was all consonants. But now, generations after it came into uh, uh, misuse and no use, and, and now we don't know how to pronounce it, and so scholars, Jewish scholars, put together a Hebrew text with vowels in it. But the Hebrew text itself is so sacred that they're not going to mess with it. So instead of putting actual vowel letters between the consonants, the vowels are actually dots that they put in between. They don't move any of the letters. They just put a dot in between, a couple dots below, a kind of little T-looking thing above. These all represent different vowel sounds to help people pronounce so you got Y-H-W-H. But how do you pronounce that? And so they, they took the vowels, um, they took the vowels from the name that they would say for Lord off whenever they saw the name of God, Y-H-W-H, they would say Adonai. Uh, they wouldn't as much as say Yahweh. They would say Adonai. And they took the vowels from that name and the one that they would say when they saw those four letters and they put those between the four letters of, of Yahweh. So the consonants of Adonai, with, or excuse me, the vowels of Adonai with the consonants Y-H-W-H comes out uh, Yahovah. Now, have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Jehovah. That's where Jehovah comes from. So if you ever get beaten up by a Jehovah's Witness... <laughs> which is what happens when they come to your door. Okay, They say to you, hey, and they've got, you know, dressed up, very pleasant, and hey, the world's coming to end, and you're going to hell. But it's a big smile. And I've got a magazine to tell you how you, how you can avoid that. Okay, And uh, I've gotten into debates with Jehovah's Witnesses uh, on the porch, and as probably some of you have, and one of the things that they will do is they'll say, so what's the name of God? And they'll be very insistent. So what is his name? The Bible says that his name is Jehovah. Okay. And then if you now, knowing what you know, you can now spend 15 minutes boring them as I bored you. <laughs> well, you know, there are the four letters, Y-H-W-H, you know, and then there's the capital letters, L-O-R-D, and then there's the, and there's Adonai, and there's the consonants, and there's the vowels, and and all that. So did you know that? Okay, and Jehovah is just an anglicized form of the combination of Yahweh and Adonai. And then hopefully they run, okay, after after that. But that's really what happened. That's where Jehovah came from. Now, what does Yahovah, what is Yahweh, what does that mean? Uh, it means it's a name for God that is the self-existent one. I am. And when God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, this is my name. And the personal name of God becomes Yahweh, the, the self-existent one. I am. Now think about how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God gives no explanation as to where God came from. The self-existent one. And whatever you believe about creation, evolution, Big Bang, all of that, you need to, you're going to have to grapple somehow with the first person or the first thing. Okay, mm -hmm. There's a first person or first thing that came from somewhere. And you're going to get through infinite regression to a point where you say, well, I came from my parents and my parents came from their parents. And finally you get back to Adam and Eve. And where did Adam and Eve come from? And finally you get back to there's someone or something. I don't know where he or it came from. And everybody has that issue. Every last person. Nobody can explain where the first thing or person came from. Nobody. And the Bible simply says that first person is God. 
the self-existent one in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So Moses says, who shall I say sent me? Say Yahweh sent you, the self-existent one. I am that I am. Now, you move into your New Testament, and that becomes significant because Jesus comes. And remember, the Bible has said that the solution to sin is going to come through the seed of the woman, and it tracks that seed and tracks that seed through the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And the New Testament begins with the arrival of this one through the promised seed, Jesus Christ. And in his earthly ministry, he taught and he healed, but he also debated. And the people he debated were most often the religious leaders. And one of those debates is found in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, John chapter 8, beginning in verse uh, 45, down through verse 58. John chapter 8. Jesus uh, is saying to these religious leaders, you're not of your father Abraham. Well, this is a huge insult because they considered themselves to be the dudes, the guys, because we've come through, we've come our father Abraham, and we are of Abraham's seed. And if you were of Abraham's seed, you would do the things and be delighted by the things that Abraham did and was delighted by, Jesus says to them. And then he makes, in the midst of that, he makes the statement to them in verse 58 of John 8. John 8, 58. Before Abraham was born, he says, I am. And then the Bible says that they picked up stones to kill him. Now, do you know why they picked up stones to kill him when he said that? Because they knew what I am meant. Who's he claiming to be when he says, I am? Now, no, I mean, that's a weird way to say that, isn't it? Before Abraham was born, I am. You would think he would say before Abraham was born, I was. Right? But he doesn't. He purposely says, I am, and it has the intended effect. They get the point that he is claiming to be the one who identified himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. None other than the self-existent God. So they pick up stones to kill him because he's claiming to be God. If anyone ever tells you Jesus never claimed to be God, they don't know what they're talking about. In John chapter 8, he clearly claimed to be God, and the people who first heard him understood him to be claiming to be God, and that's why they wanted to kill him for blasphemy. I was just going to ask if you knew uh, what the Jehovah's Witness Bible says in that verse. How do they butcher it to change it and make it sound like something else? Yeah, Because that's what they do with basic truth from the Bible. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know what that verse says. In the New World Translation, that's their translation. The New World Translation. So um, Jesus makes that Jesus makes that claim. They understand that to be a claim to be God, and so they seek to kill him. Now, he makes that claim in John eight fifty eight, and uh, I would encourage you sometime to read through John six. Uh, read through, read through the whole Bible. That would be good. <laughs> you know, you could read the you could read the Gospel of John, and in the midst of the Gospel of John, chapter six through eleven, seven times. Jesus says, I am. In John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. In chapter uh, 8, he says, I'm the light of the world. I am the light of the world. In uh, chapter 8 and verse 58, he says, before Abraham was born, I am. In chapter 10, he says, I am the gate. I'm the gate to the sheepfold. He says in chapter 10 as well, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11 and verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In chapter 15, I am the vine. So seven times he says, and the reason John includes all these I am sayings of Jesus is because John tells us why he wrote the Gospel of John. We get to the end of the Gospel of John. In chapter 21 and, and verse 30, he says, I have written these things to you so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So he's proving who Jesus is, and one of those proofs is all of these I am statements 
equating him with the God who confronted Moses. All right, page five, then, in your notes. Moses led the Exodus. The Israelites were in Egypt 430 years. They grew to be a nation of about two and a half million people. But they became slaves of the Egyptians after Joseph died. God raised up a new leader, Moses, around 1500 B.C. Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt across the Red Sea on dry land to Mount Sinai. And then, number three, Israel received the law and the plans for the, the tabernacle. At Sinai, God gave Israel two things, the law and the plans for the tabernacle. So they received the law and they built the the tabernacle, including its most important piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. So I'd like to talk about the law and the tabernacle for a bit. First of all, the law. And at Sinai, you know that God gave his Ten Commandments to to Moses and to to the nation. And I want to point out a few things about those Ten Commandments. Uh, There are two kinds of laws in your Old Testament, two kinds. This won't be on the test because we don't have a a test. But uh, one type of law is called apodictic law, A-P-O-D-I-C-T-I-C, apodictic. Uh, That's one type of law. And then another one is casuistic law. So that's C-A-S-U-I-S-T-I-C, casuistic. So there's apodictic and casuistic. What are those? Apodictic laws are commands, and they are commands that are timeless. They're not bound by circumstance. So thou shalt not murder, period. Thou shalt not steal, period. Thou shalt not. So the Ten Commandments are in the form of these apodictic, no no context to them, no situation to them. Here's the command. But then you've got casuistic laws. And most of the laws given in the first five books of your Old Testament, the books of the law, they are called, most of them are of this casuistic type. Casuistic, to remember that, think of this. They are case, casuistic case laws. And they are, they're not of the form, thou shalt not. These are of the form, if this happens, then do that. So in the case where, in the situation where this happens, this is what you're supposed to do. And in fact, those cases explain some of the apodictic laws. I mean, there are people who are commanded to be killed in the case laws. But in the Ten Commandments, it says, thou shalt not murder. Now, the murder piece is important. Because God does not actually outlaw killing. He outlaws murder. So there are circumstances in which it's appropriate to take the life of someone. Does God not command that? To take the life of someone who violates his his requirements? You've got capital punishment given in the books of the law for certain offenses. So that's confused people, but the reason it confuses people is because they don't know apodictic from casuistic, all right? And God says, thou shalt not murder, but there are circumstances in which taking the life of someone is appropriate. Taking the life of an innocent person is never appropriate. And that's what's being outlawed. And so God has a bunch of cases for for that. Uh, even, you know, you shall remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. But if you are doing this on the Sabbath, there are certain things, cases in which God tells you what to do. So you've got apodictic laws and you've got case laws. And those are... The two kinds you'll find in the books of the law, most of them are cases telling you, if this, then do that. So that's one thing to point out about the law that God gave. Here's another. The Ten Commandments have two major sections to them. They are commandments related to God, our relationship with God, and commandments related to our relationship with people. So you shall have no other gods before me. 
That's a commandment related directly to our relationship with God. Uh, you shall not make any graven image to bow down before it. That's a that's a commandment related directly to our relationship with God. But then that's and four the first four of the ten are of that type, our relationship with God. And then commandments five through ten are about our relationship with each other. So thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not covet. These are all related to us with each other. So you've got laws related to God, you've got laws related to to man. So you come to the New Testament, and Jesus again being confronted by religious leaders, and they say, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Matthew, Matthew 22, Matthew 22, verses 35 to 40. Matthew 22, 35 to 40. So, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, and he doesn't, he doesn't choose any of the top ten. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And, Jesus goes on to say, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, those two commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your, all your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. They're both found in the books of the law. But neither of them are found in the Ten Commandments. Directly. But indirectly, they are, aren't they? Because remember, the Ten Commandments have two major categories. Loving, relationship with God, and relationship with people. And so Jesus takes these two commands, one that's about supreme love for God, and the other about love for neighbor, and he says, on these two commands, hang everything. Hang all the law. Now he gets those two commands from, love the Lord your God, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. And love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19 and verse 18. Leviticus 19, 18. So he picks these two out of different places in the books of the law. But he says on these two hang all the law. Why can you say that? Because the Ten Commandments are divided into these two categories. Our relationship with God and our relationship to, to others. Now, Jesus says the second is like that first and greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this is just a side issue, but I just want to kick this dog and then I'll move on. Okay. So have you ever heard people say that you should, you have to learn to love yourself? Okay. So pop psychology says that. You know, Whitney Houston said that. You know, the greatest love of all, learning to love yourself, said Whitney, is the greatest love of all. Now, Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for others. So who are you going to take, Whitney or Jesus? All right. <laughs> but this whole idea of love yourself and learning to love yourself is very, very popular. And there are even people who say, and you know, the Bible says that you're to love yourself. And whenever people say that, I'm always very intrigued. Because <laughs> I've read it a few times, and I just haven't come across that particular command to, to love yourself. The Bible's got a lot of commands. The love yourself one, I've just missed. But they inform us that it's actually in what I quoted you a minute ago. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor. Remember how? As yourself. As yourself. So you've got to love yourself. So what they're saying is there's three commands. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. And yet Jesus in the passage did the math for you. Remember he said this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. And then he said on these how many commandments? Hang all the law. On these two. On these two commands hang everything. Two. Okay, now, please get this. Forgive the grammar. There ain't three. There's no love God, love neighbor, and love yourself. That would be three. Jesus says on these two, hang everything. 
And to love your neighbor as yourself, the reason there's no command to love yourself is because the Bible assumes God already knows. In fact, our big problem is that we love ourselves too much, not that we love ourselves too little. So, I feel better having kicked that dog. Let us move on. So the law is a particular type of law. It's the apodictic law. You've got the case laws that explain that in situations. You've got the two tablets of the law that relate to our relationship with God, relationship with with man. And this law is a covenant between God and the people of Israel. And they are to keep his law, and they are to show their complete devotion to him in the keeping of that law. Now, I just point that out, that it's a covenant for this reason. Because there are different kinds of covenants given in your Bible. And I want to just give you some of those and tell you what the difference in these types of covenants are. Um, God gave a covenant to Noah. It's called the Noahic Covenant. Noah with I C on the end. And the covenant he gave with Noah that we'll do on Sunday mornings in a few weeks uh, is in Genesis chapter 9. And it's an unconditional promise that he gives to Noah that I'm never going to destroy the world again the way I did with water. So it's an unconditional promise. I'm never going to do this. Now, we say I say unconditional. What would a conditional promise be like? That would be, I won't destroy the world with water if... A conditional promise always has an if in it. An unconditional promise is simply a statement that I'm going to do something quite apart from what you do. All right. So there's an unconditional type of covenant. The Noahic covenant is like that. Abrahamic covenant. God makes a, a covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15, and it Two is an unconditional covenant. And God says, I'm going to give you a land. And in chapter 15, he gives the parameters of that land. And it's important that you know it's unconditional. So this promise cannot be forfeited. Because God's going to do it, even though you and your descendants are scoundrels, this is still going to happen. Because I promised it. It's not based on how your obedience. But at Sinai, God gives a covenant to Moses with the law. And that's a conditional covenant. You keep my laws, and I will bless you. You disobey my laws, I will curse you. Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's just all about these blessings and curses that will come. If you keep my law, or if you do not keep, keep my law. And God makes a covenant with David. The Davidic covenant. That's an unconditional promise about the, the, the kingship of Israel remaining with the line of David. And through what line did Jesus come? Through the line of David. This is an unconditional promise. This is how it's going to happen. And then one more. Uh, this one's called the New Covenant. And they're all really cool covenants, but the New Covenant is a really, really cool covenant. Because in in this covenant, it's an unconditional promise to forgive sin and and for God to establish a relationship with Israel first and and then to, to us now by writing his law on our hearts. It's a covenant of pure grace, the new covenant. It's found in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. So you've got these different kinds of covenants, and the law is a particular type, a conditional covenant. If you keep the law, this is what happens. But the other covenants are unconditional, promises of God for what he's going to do. Now, how does that affect you and me? Here's how. So how is someone rightly related to God? How is a person rightly related to God? I started to say, how is a person saved? But I'm not sure if everyone here knows what we mean by that. The Bible uses that terminology to be saved, to be rescued, to be saved from your sin, to be rescued from the penalties for for sin and all of us sin. 
All of us. So we all have penalty attached to that. How do you get rescued from that? And how do you move from being estranged from God, that the Bible says all of us are when we come into the world, how do you move from being apart from God to being in relationship with God? How does all that happen? And there are many, 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 many people who teach that it's by what you do. That it's by keeping the rules. That it's by keeping the laws. And I'm here to tell you, and probably in our remaining time to tell you, and more important, God has told us in the Bible, that's not how it happens. And the reason that's not how it happens is because you're not able and I'm not able to keep the rules. Sin has debilitated us from being able to keep the rules as God requires. Every last one of us. God gave a, per- a perfect list of rules with the, com- the Ten Commandments. And then he gave explanations of those Ten Commandments. There's nothing wrong with the rules. The rules are just fine. Guess where the problem is? The rule keepers. Or the non-rule keepers, okay? That would be us. We're the problem, not the law. So... Throughout the Bible, then, you have this misunderstanding that people naturally have. They naturally gravitate. We naturally gravitate toward, I do something, I earn stuff. And you find that in the Old Testament, people thinking that they've earned favor with God by keeping the rules. You find it when you come into the New Testament, though. And these religious leaders that kept confronting Jesus, they were completely convinced that they had kept it well enough. And Jesus turns it all on its head when he tells them that you are blind leaders of the blind. You are open graves, he says. He says, in the way you have misused my law, you have strained out a gnat. Do you remember him saying this? In Matthew 23? And you swallow a camel. That's what he says. So you take these rules and you slice and you dice them and you think that you have and you think that you have satisfied God's requirements. And in fact, instead, Mark chapter seven, Mark seven, by your traditions you nullify the commands of God. That's what he says. So you got the laws, you got the rules, you got people who always who naturally gravitate toward This is how I have a relationship with God. If that were true, friends, it would not have been necessary for God to come at all. Think about that. God had to come to earth. God had to come to earth. God makes an appearance as man. Why does he have to do that? Because the law won't get it. And the law won't get it because you can't keep it. That's why Jesus comes. Now, I want to make sure you understand that because it's central to an understanding of the good news of the gospel. Uh, If you care to jot down Romans 3.20, Romans 3.20. Romans 3.20 tells us that the law shows us sin. That's what the law does. The law doesn't save you. The law, the law shows you that you need to be saved. <laughs> and even when you try to keep the rules, you still need to be saved because you don't keep the rules well enough. So Romans 3.20 says that. Galatians 3.27 and following. The law was put in charge until faith came. And then goes on to talk about the fact that Christ has come and what and what Christ has, has done. So the law was put in charge. In fact, some translations say the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Galatians 3.21. Galatians 3.21. If a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. 
Now, think about what I just read. If a law could have been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Notice the first line. If a law could have been given, a law, if any law could have been given that could impart life to people, then certainly that would have come by the, not a law, the law. If it were possible for any list of rules to impart life, it certainly would have come by the law that God gave because he gave a perfect list of rules. If it could have happened that way, it would have happened through this law. That's what Paul, who wrote that, is saying. But he says in chapter 2 and verse 21, that's 3.21, Galatians 2.21, says this, If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I mean, that's just laying it out there, isn't it? If righteousness can be gained by that, then God doesn't have to come. And God doesn't have to become man. And God doesn't have to die on a tree for us. Christ died for nothing if it could be done through the law. So instead, it's not done through the law. Last verse I'll give you on this. Romans 3.28. Romans 3.28. That tells us now a righteousness has been given apart from the law. Now, where does that righteousness come from? It's the righteousness of Jesus. It's the righteousness of God. It's the absolutely righteous life that Jesus lived when he was here. That's why you guys hear me say on Sunday mornings a lot, he lived the life that we should have lived. He lived the righteous, perfect life that we should have lived. He kept all the rules perfectly. Nobody else has ever done that. Every last one. And then he died, having lived that perfect life. His death is now acceptable to the Father because he's a perfect sacrifice. Not an animal sacrifice. A human being. But a perfect human being. Who's being offered as a sacrifice to pay the penalty that you've got and I've got to pay. All right, so if all of that's true, if everything I just said is true, and by the way, it is. Okay? So if all of that is true, then what happens if somebody refuses to receive the payment that Jesus made for them? Who will pay for their sin? They will. And how long will it take for you to pay for your sin? Well, I don't know. I'm only, you know, if I only live 70 years, then put me in purgatory for 70 years. I mean, that's kind of what we think. I don't know, 70 years? No, because sin is an infinite offense against a holy God. See, sin is not just confined to what you do at a point in time. The sin that we commit against one another is first and foremost and most importantly committed against God. Every sin involves God, every last one. And any sin that is an infinite, infinite offense against a holy God. How long will it take for you to pay that back? That's why it takes forever. That's why it's urgent for you to receive the good news offer of Christ. He paid the penalty so you don't have to. That's what the gospel is. That's what the good news is. Okay? So, I want to give you some time to do that. I want to close our time here having looked at the law and what the law is and what the law was not intended to be to make sure that you understand that your relationship with God is not about the rules that you keep, whatever list of rules that is. There are religions, lots of them, most of them. Most religion is this. Most religions are, here's the list of rules you need to keep in order to have a relationship with God. Isn't that right? Mm -hmm. And the difference between the various religions is simply the different list of rules. It's 
our particular set of hoops that you got to jump through in order to satisfy God. And the Bible is telling you, and the fact that Jesus had to come and die, live for you and die for you, the fact that all of that's there means there's no set of hoops that's going to get it done. There's no set of rules. Therefore, any religion that's telling you that is not telling you how to have a relationship with God. The way you have a relationship with God is you receive the gift that Jesus gives you in his life and in his death. Now, how do you receive that? The Bible says this. It is by grace that you are saved, that you are rescued from your sin. It is by grace that you are rescued through faith. And that not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not, hear this, not by, does anybody remember? Not by works. So that no one can boast before God. No one will ever stand before God and say, can you believe me? When you stand at the judgment and you say, can you believe how good I was? No one will be able to do that to God. No one will be able to boast. And even those who enjoy eternity with him will only do so because of his grace. His grace given to you in Jesus. And how do you receive it? You receive it by faith. The word faith in your New Testament means believe. So what do I believe? What do I have to believe? I've got to believe that I'm a sinner who can't get it done. I've got to believe that Christ came and did what I couldn't do. He lived the life that I should have lived. He died the death that I deserved. I believe that. And because I believe that, then I ask you, Lord, to save, to rescue me. And I give my life to you. That's how you're given a relationship with God. That's how you receive the gift of eternal life. You believe. You believe you're a sinner. You believe Christ lived for you and died for you. And then you ask him to rescue you. And you give your life to him. And then from that point on, we're almost done. We're going to pray in a moment. He begins a change operation inside of you. The Bible says he gives you his Holy Spirit. And he begins to change you from the inside out gradually. If you were to receive the gift of Christ's offer tonight, you would wake up tomorrow still a sinner. But a different sinner. A sinner with the Holy Spirit. A sinner who now cares about sin and doesn't want to do it. And you have the aid of God, the Holy Spirit, to help you with that. And if God gives you another 20 years or 50 years, he will be with you gradually every day, making you more like Jesus. One day, when he calls you home, you will be in an instant completely like Jesus. And you'll be with him forever. That's the gift of eternal life. He offers that to you. We're going to pray. And I encourage you, as we bow from your heart to God, in your own words, acknowledge I'm a sinner. Jesus lived. He died for me. I ask you to save me. I ask you to rescue me. I give my life to you. Okay? Let's bow. Father, thank you for the blessed good news of the gospel. We thank you that your word lays out so very clearly the bad news. The bad news is that we are sinful that we have chosen to sin, each and every one of us. We all come into this world because Adam and Eve, our first parents, did what we would have done. And so we come into this world apart from you, without a relationship with you. You make very clear in your word that sin has caused this separation from you and that therefore there is nothing that we can do to mend this breach between us and our God. We thank you that Jesus is the bridge between where we are and who you are. That God became man, and the God-man is the bridge between the two. And the sinless one, Jesus, lived the life that we were designed to live. And therefore his death is acceptable to you, God the Father. And he paid the penalty, dying in my place, in our place. Lord, I believe that. 
I have faith in that. I believe who Jesus is and what he did. I thank you for the change that you have made in me from age 19 to this point and the change you are continually making in me. I thank you for those that are in this room for whom that's a reality as well and for whom the, the offer of eternal life is something in which they have absolute confidence, not in themselves, but in the promise of the God who gave it. And I pray for any who came into this room who did not know the good news. Perhaps they've heard it for the first time that your Holy Spirit is moving upon their hearts so that they see their need as a sinner and they see their need of the Savior and they're expressing their heart belief, their faith in you in this sacred moment. Lord, we ask you for each of us then that have come to you to continue your good work in us and to continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. We have complete confidence that you will complete what you have begun in us. Go with us this week as we serve you. We ask you to grant us safety until this Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.